Amen. If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 this morning. Going to be looking at verses 28 through 32. I know it's a smaller passage of Scripture, but we have a lot of ground to cover. Acts 20, verses 28 through 32. I will talk fast, and you need to listen even faster this morning. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Acts 20. 28 through 32, it reads like this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I don't know if you know this or not, or if you realize it, but we live in a day where tolerance is king. This is not just the case outside the walls of the church, but it is the case inside the walls of the church as well. In fact, We are told that feelings need to take precedence over right doctrine or theology. This is not to say that we need to go around being jerks to everyone, but it is to say that we have an obvious problem within the churches. In fact, if you try to question whether someone is teaching something that is biblical or not, then you get labeled all kinds of things. If you call teaching heresy... People don't like it. Some people will even throw around the words, well, you're a legalist or, heaven forbid, you're a fundamentalist. Because they really don't understand the meaning of either of those terms. I love to read the briefing by Albert Muller. Every day he addresses current issues within a biblical framework and gives feedback on them. I would challenge you to read or listen to his podcast. It's really um, profound things. Well, because Albert Moeller has such a brilliant mind and I deeply respect him, I decided to go on his site and just type in the word heresy and do a search on his site that contained articles with the word heresy in them. The very first hit on his website was this one. Heresy and humility. Lessons from a current controversy. In it, he says this, a failure to recognize and refute heresy means disaster for the church and its witness to Christ. There are two dangers that quickly emerge. The first and most dangerous is the unwillingness of many modern theologians to acknowledge the reality and danger of heresy. 
Liberal theology denied the possibility of heresy and then openly embraced it. The second danger is like the fable of the boy who cried wolf. Some genuine doctrinal disagreements have nothing at all to do with the line between orthodoxy and heresy. Furthermore, not every false doctrine or theological error is a heresy. Here are some other headlines from his website. The heresy of racial superiority. There are new, no new heresies. Homosexuality and heresy. Tomorrow's God, today's heresy. Heresy is not heroic. Why heresy matters. Universalism is a lure. The emerging case of Rob Bell. The Osteen predicament. Mere happiness cannot bear the weight of the gospel. Let me give you one last one, and I just want to challenge you to go to his site sometime, albertmoller.com, and read and dive deep into some things concerning scripture and theology. Here's a final one I want to give you, and I'm sure most of you have heard of the book The Shack, and you know that it's going to be a movie. Here's one of his titles, The Shack. The Missing Art of Evangelical Discernment. In that article, he goes through and lists where the movie and the book is wrong and why it is heretical and why evangelicals continue to not use discernment when it comes to these things. That is what it boils down to, church. The evangelical world is no longer discerning. We no longer critique things biblically, partly because we don't know our word well enough. And when someone comes along and does give a critique or calls someone out, then they are quickly labeled as not as uh, informed people. They're not labeled as being biblical, but they're labeled as being judgmental and not being love loving. And they are just uh, on a witch hunt. And so when we call into question a false teaching and when we are not, uh, then we're not showing the love of Christ. That's absurd and unbiblical. Here's what is unloving. What is unloving is to not warn someone when when they are in danger. That is unloving. It was Charles Simeon who said, To warn men of their danger is the kindest office of love. Listen, our text this morning describes false teachers as fierce wolves who will not spare the flock. If this is the case, and I believe the scripture is correct, then it would be unloving to not warn God's people of false teaching or even false teachers. You know, I went and listened to a man speak. Uh, Bill Sexton went with me and we listened to a man speak on human trafficking the other day. And he gave some warning signs to look for. And this is, this is what Paul is doing to the elders at Ephesus. He's saying, here are the signs. Here is what you need to look for. You need to be on high alert against the dangers of these false teachers. He then reveals how to deal with false teaching. And what we see is the major responsibility of the elders in the church 
is the flock, is to guard the flock from fierce wolves. And in order to guard the flock, they must guard themselves and the flock, warning against false teachers by focusing on God and the word of his grace. And so I want to look at this this morning. I know full well that the majority of this message applies to me in particular in a Baptist church because in our church, we don't have elders. Uh, We have one elder and that's me. Um, I'm not going to talk about whether that's good or bad. We can talk about that another time. But um, so I, I know full well that the majority of this speaks to me by But I need you to hear what Paul is saying, how he's addressing the elders, and what's he saying their job is. So first, elders must guard themselves and the flock. We see that laid out there in that very first verse. Elders must guard themselves and the flock. We notice Paul says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. This is how he starts off. First, pay careful attention to yourself and then to the flock. The local congregation of believers is the flock. And so by taking care of yourself, you are then enabling yourself to take care of the church. What does it mean by careful attention, by pay careful attention to yourself? Does this mean um, watch what you eat? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he saying, hey, make sure you go out and do some exercise and eat your vitamins, you know, like Hulk Hogan used to do, you know, eat your vitamins and say your prayers. Is that what he's talking about? Well, let's look at it. He first says that we need to, it's this idea that we need to guard ourselves. Guard yourself. When it says pay careful attention to yourself, what it's saying is turn your mind to or turn your attention to yourself. Before someone can shepherd a flock, they have to shepherd their own soul. God's word must apply to the church leader first. They must practice what they preach so they must pay attention to their own soul i'm going to give you six areas real quick where the elder must guard themselves first the elder must guard themselves against false teaching in luke chapter 12 verse 1 it says this jesus is talking to his disciples and he and he tells his disciples to be aware of the leaven or the false teaching of the pharisees which is hypocrisy. And so the elders must be on guard. They must be on guard against false teaching. They have to look out for false teaching. Number two, against bitterness and being unforgiving. Against bitterness and being unforgiving. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. And if he sins, Against you seven times in the day and turns to you, returns to you seven times saying, I repent. Does Jesus say, well, don't forgive him? Is that what he says? No, he says, you must forgive him. So elders must be on guard against bitterness and being unforgiving and saying, oh, well, they they messed up again. I can't forgive them. We have to be on guard against that. Number three. Against self-indulgence, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Against self-indulgence, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, 
lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So we, we have to guard ourselves against indulgence, drunkenness, cares of this life. Number four, against myths and speculations. Against myths and speculations. Unfortunately, many leaders, many pastors give in to speculation. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Nor to devote themselves, speaking to leaders, elders, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Fifthly, elders must be devoted to the scripture and teaching it. Elders must be devoted to the scripture and teaching it. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So this is what elders must be devoted for. Now I know I said I was going to give you six, but I stopped at five. I just realized I pulled one out. So you only get five. Now to be clear, that's not, that's not an exhaustive list. However, it's a list of some places where the elder, which in the Baptist church is the pastor, needs to be devoted and what he needs to be on guard against. So he says, guard yourself. But secondly, guard the flock. And just to be clear, I could have preached my whole sermon over this one verse. But I did not want to do that, which is why I'm not spending much time on this first part. What, what is interesting here is that after Paul tells the elders to guard themselves, he tells them to guard the flock. But he says, um, all of the flock. Not just some of it. A shepherd who does not guard his flock is a negligent shepherd. The shepherd has to pay attention to the flock in order to guard the flock. Because the Holy Spirit has appointed the overseer. That's why the shepherd guards the flock. Because the Holy Spirit has appointed him. Paul makes it clear that the Holy Spirit calls and appoints ministers. He clearly says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To Kate. To, to care for the word, care is the word shepherd. And the word overseer is the same word for bishop. Paul has called these men so far elders, bishops, and shepherds. And the key point is that they are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that often we like to say, well, you know, we choose who our leaders are. And, and that sort of thing. And, and um, you know, I've heard people say, well, well, uh, when I've been in a position before, well, we hired you. And it's not, it's true in a sense, but it's not totally true. The Holy Spirit has appointed all the overseers, the bishops, the elders. So guard the flock because the Holy Spirit has appointed the overseer. Guard the flock because sheep are prone to wander. Sheep are prone to wander. That's just a fact of the matter. And if you don't realize that, go tend some sheep for a while. Okay, you'll know they are prone to wander. That's why we sing that phrase, prone to wander 
Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our, that's what we want to do. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable and says, Which one of you having a hundred sheep, and if he loses one of them, leaves the ninety-nine in open country, and goes and finds the one that is lost? The fact is, sheep wander off. They get attracted to something else. They don't pay attention. They don't listen to the warnings of a shepherd. They don't uh, 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 attach to the rest of the flock. They don't trust the shepherd. All of these are reasons that sheep wander. The shepherd guards the flock because sheep are prone to wander. Thirdly, the shepherd guards the flock because sheep can be attacked from within and without. We're going to talk about that more in a few minutes. But Paul says, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And so these wolves were, were outside and they came in. And then he says, and from among your own selves. So now these ones are within. Sheep are attacked from within and they are attacked from without. And lastly, we guard the flock because God paid a price for the flock. Church, there's no way around this. He said, which he obtained with his own blood. So a purchase was made. A transaction happened. And the price was God's blood. What was bought in this transaction? The flock. The church. Now it's interesting as we read this. Because in the Greek this can actually be translated through the agency of his own blood. What we have here is Paul making it clear that God the Father purchased the flock. God the Son shed his blood to pay the price for the flock. And God the Holy Spirit appointed the elders over the flock. Church, the reason why the shepherd guards the flock is because God paid the price for the flock and the blood of his own son was the price that was paid. And so elders are called to protect the flock. Protect it. To protect the flock. And then we have a warning. Paul says, hey, take care of yourself. Take care of the flock. And then he gives Warning against false teachers in verses 29 through 31. He's given a clear warning against false teachers. In fact, he uses some strong language here. He calls them fierce wolves and makes it clear that false teachers will come into the flock, but some are already in the flock. Elders are to guard the flock by warning against false teachers. However, here's a here's a question: How can someone warn? against false teachers how can the elders warn against false teachers how can a pastor warn against false teachers well first of all they must know doctrine elders must know doctrine listen it's hard to spot a fake without knowledge of the real thing it's the same way with scripture if an elder wants to spot a false teacher or false teaching they must know then what falls outside the lines they have to know the essential truths of the Christian faith. They have to know what areas are non-negotiable and what areas 
can there be disagreement on? In order to do this, then the elders should have knowledge of the scriptures, but also some knowledge of church history and doctrinal controversies that have taken place throughout church history. There are some doctrines that are fundamental to the Christian faith, where there's absolutely no room for tolerance whatsoever. Let me give you a few of them. The fact that God is triune, fundamental to the Christian faith. So God is one in essence and three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible is our sole authority and is inspired word of God. The person and work of Jesus Christ, including the fact that he is God and man, though sinless, is something that's non-negotiable. The fact that Jesus died a substitutionary death on the cross is non-negotiable. The fact that he was resurrected is non-negotiable. The, the fact that he ascended into heaven is non-negotiable. The fact that he is coming again is non-negotiable. The fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, non-negotiable. These are truths. We cannot negotiate them. If we try to negotiate some sort of middle ground and say, well, I'll meet you in the middle, then we compromise the faith. There are areas, however, that are important, but they're not essential to salvation. For example, one's view on baptism, biblical prophecy. It's important, but it's not essential. So whether someone's pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, or all-mill, and you're like, I have no idea what those terms are. If you want to talk later, we can. Whether someone is a cessationist or continuationist, when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or even a person's view of God's sovereign grace and salvation. So whether they are a Calvinist or an Arminianist in their thought process, those things are not necessarily essential to salvation. We can discuss those doctrines. We can debate those doctrines. We can have strong debates over those doctrines. We can have strong disagreement over those doctrines. We can disagree with someone over one of those doctrines without saying, oh, well, you're a heretic or you're a false teacher. Unless, of course, they carry it too far into the areas where they're completely unbiblical. So let me give you an example. One of my favorite modern day theologians and a man I love dearly who has taught me so much through the reading of his books and listening to him as R.C. Sproul. He holds to the belief of infant baptism. I disagree with him. I don't agree with him. I don't hold to that view. But I don't consider him a heretic or a false teacher. However, if someone says that in order to be saved, you must be baptized, at that point they've crossed the line into heresy. Let me give you another example. When some of those word of faith teachers teach that God is required to obey our commands, that, that God is just required to obey you, that's heresy. Or someone says that Jesus has already come and he's not coming again, that's heresy. This is to say that elders must know doctrine. They, they have to be able to spot false teachers and they have to be able to warn the flock. Now, this is not to say that you should not know doctrine as well. But you know there are times that it might not be a bad idea. Might not be a bad idea to ask your pastor about a book or about a movie or about something that you want to know whether it's doctrinally sound or not. Might not be a bad idea. 
But let's look at this in the warning against false teachers. And that says, sinful heresy comes from inside and outside. Paul calls these heretics fierce wolves. And he says they will come, meaning they are outside of the church. And they come into the church and they will not spare the flock. And then he says there are some that will come from among you, meaning that they are inside the church and they will speak twisted things, which means they will distort the truth. In other words, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they distort the truth in order to divide the church. It says they draw away disciples. Now look at what it says. They draw away disciples after who? After them. The goal of heretical false teachers and teachings is to build an audience and at the root of what they are doing is pride and selfishness. Their goal is to build their own kingdom. I love what John Calvin says in his commentaries over verse 30. He says, ambition is the mother of all heresies. And then he goes on to say, almost all corruption of doctrine flows from the pride of men. And so we learn again out of the out of saying that it cannot otherwise be, but that ambitious men will turn away from right purity and corrupt the word of God. The pure and sincere handling of scripture leads to Jesus Christ alone having preeminence. But remember, Paul said that they will seek to draw away the disciples after them. False teachers don't focus on Christ. They focus on self and their own glory, seeking to rob Christ of his glory. Heretical teaching and teachers are sinful at the root of their sin is pride. They go around trying to gather a following, trying to get their own disciples, trying to get their own people to follow them. And if challenged, if you challenge them, they get angry and they get upset and they object to being called wolves. But yet the proof that they are wolves is found in the fact that they draw disciples after themselves instead of Christ. And Christ is the only master of his disciples. We can't miss this either, church. These teachers of heresy, these false teachers, are not just a threat of coming into the church, but they also are already in the church, even from among themselves. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Paul is not just warning the people that there are perhaps... uh, people ignorant of doctrine or those that have not been taught a lot, but he is warning these men that he has personally taught for three years. Church, if you think that somehow you're not vulnerable to the dangers of false teaching, if you think somehow, oh, well, you know what? I've been been a believer for a real long time, so I'm not vulnerable. I'll spot false teaching a mile away. If you think that, perhaps you're even more vulnerable because your heart's deceiving you. We must understand that being a fierce wolf in this passage is not about an outward appearance. In other words, you cannot just look at someone and say, oh, you know what? I bet you that person's a wolf. I bet they're seeking to divide the flock. I bet you they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. As we look at this, being a fierce wolf is a heart issue. Jesus gave a warning about wolves in sheep's clothing. 
When he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward are ravenous wolves. Look, when a sheep looks at a wolf that is dressed like a sheep, they think it is a sheep. Because that's the way it works. That's why the wolf is dressed in sheep's clothing. That is the whole point. That the sheep has to look closely. The sheep has to study the wolf in order to recognize, hey, that's not a sheep. That's a wolf. That's the whole point. Heresy doesn't come along saying, hey, I want everybody to know that I'm about ready to teach you some heretical teaching and some false teaching. It doesn't come announcing that. Why do you think so many evangelical Christians are bamboozled and fooled by heresy and false teaching? Oh, well, it sounds good. But, but pastor, you don't understand. This changed my life. You don't think God can use heresy to change your life? That's not the litmus test. The litmus test isn't, oh, how did it affect your emotions? Oh, how did it affect you as a person? The test is, is it biblical or not? And when we like to say things like, oh, well, this is just a story. That doesn't matter. It doesn't come announcing itself as heresy. That's the whole point. Worm its way in. Teach you false teaching. Suck you in until you're following after a false teaching. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the servants of Satan disgust, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then he tells that their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's letting us know that they expose who they really are by what they do. False teachers are seeking personal glory and gain, not the glory of Christ. And this is what he exposes. Here's what we must understand, church. They are wolves in sheep's clothing for a reason. For a reason. They don't, they don't announce that they are secretly trying to divide the church. They don't announce that they're heresy. And heads, instead, heresy creeps in subtly. It creeps in because we don't like how God has provided for us in a certain way. And so we say, you know what? I, I want something different. And so we begin to listen to teachers that offer something different, something just a little extra biblical. While the false teacher is busy trying to gain a following to stroke their own ego, those that follow after a false teaching are looking for something beyond the Bible that teaches about God or what the Bible teaches about God or about sin. They don't like what the Bible teaches, so they gotta, they got to find something else. Maybe they have some sort of sin in their life that they really enjoy doing. And so they need to find an excuse to keep on doing it. And so they invent a God of love. God is only love. He would never condemn anyone to hell. And the next thing you know, they're promoting a heresy of universalism. Listen, church, this happens all the time, and it happens in churches. It is for this reason that the elders have to warn against false teachers, against that which is a sinful heresy, which comes from the outside and from the inside of the church. And for this reason, the elders must guard their own heart and make sure that they're not in rebellion against God, to make sure that they are not being led down a path of heretical teaching to please only themselves. But I want to look at a third aspect in here, and that says false teaching ultimately reaps destruction. False teaching ultimately reaps destruction. Again, Paul says these fierce wolves will not spare the flock. 
Beliefs have consequences. Whether we think about them or not, the picture of not sparing the flock is a gruesome picture. It's one in which the idea of a pack of wolves come onto the flock of sheep and they devastate the flock. They kill them, kill many of them, and the wolves are then feeding on the sheep. The picture is meant to be gruesome. It's meant for you to, to, to look at that and go, wow, that's kind of disgusting when I, when I read it. It's meant for the elders to understand that false teaching reaps destruction in the church. It's meant to say, hey, if you allow false teaching to come into your church, it's going to ultimately reap destruction. In Dill, Montana in 2009, wolves killed 120 sheep at a ranch. The article said wolves struck again. This time they took out 120 purebreds that ranged in size from 150 to 200 pounds and Uh, were the result of more than 80 years of breeding. John Conan had some business to attend to in Billings, Montana, so Conan told his son, be sure to check on the livestock while he was gone. He called me and said it was a mess up there. He said there were dead bucks all up and down the creek. We went up there the next day and tried to count them, but there were too many to count, Conan recalled. I had tears in my eyes. Not only for myself, but for what my stock had to go through, he added. They were running, getting chewed on, bit, and piled into a corner. They were bit on the neck, on the back, on the, bite, on the back of hind legs. They'd cripple them. Then they'd rip their sides open. That sounds gross. That's a picture Paul's painting. Ravenous wolves. False teaching. How often do we see this? Someone begins to come to church. They make a profession of faith in Christ. But then something happens. They get hurt. Or something gets said. Or they go through a trial. And then they don't know how to handle it. And they distance themselves from the flock. And they're hurt. And they're wandering. And they're limping. And they become a target. For fierce wolves. Listen, I know if I was a rancher and I had lost a good portion of my sheep population, I would be on guard, ready to take out anything that threatened my sheep. This is the picture of the godly elder or pastor. The flock is precious to God because he purchased it with his blood of his son. And it's precious to the pastor elder because they have to protect the flock because it was purchased by God. And they know that false teachers want to destroy it. They warn in love. They warn in love. Paul says he admonished with tears. That word admonish is to warn. Paul took time to warn them where they were going wrong and to warn them of false teachers. And and he did so with tears. He showed compassion and concern. The idea is that Paul knew what was at stake and he poured himself into the ministry and he loved those that he ministered to. You know, there's something to be said when you do things out of love as opposed obligation there are some pastors who stand in a pulpit sunday after sunday after sunday not out of love but out of obligation they preach a text out of obligation they warn their congregation not out of love but out of obligation and at, at times it goes nowhere and there are others who do it out of love and it takes root you see the elder pastor does not guard the flock simply out of obligation but out of love And then he warns against false teaching and teachers. He does it out of love. Do it out of love. 
The third point I want us to see from this passage of Scripture is this. Focus on God and the word of His grace. Focus on God and the word of His grace. In verse 32, Paul commends the men to God, to the word of His grace, which is to build them up and give them an inheritance among all who are sanctified. God and the word of His grace keeps the elders from falling into temptation of false teaching. And as they teach about God and the word of His grace, they keep the flock from falling into false teaching. So two things real quick. Stay focused on God. The other said, stay focused on God is what Paul says. The elder must stay focused on God. Church, listen, we can do all things seemingly right and yet lose focus on the one who allows us to do them right in the first place. You understand that? We can, we can do all kinds of things that seem right but lose focus on the one that allows us to do them right in the first place. Believe it or not, this is exactly what happens to the church at Ephesus. Paul is speaking to them and he's warning them. He's giving them this warning. He's telling them, stay focused on God. But 30 years after his departure, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. They're doing the very thing that Paul says, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And I know that you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You know it. You know what it says, I'm sure. You have abandoned your first love. 30 years after Paul wrote this, this is what's said about that church. You've do, you're doing all things right. You abandon your first love. We have to stay focused on God. It's possible to be theologically correct, to theologically correctly guard the, the flock against false teaching, and yet, and yet be at the point where we abandon our first love. The reason we study theology has nothing to do with being able to go around straightening everyone else out and say, well, you're way off base. The reason I fell in love with theology is because I encounter who God is in a deeper way. I go, I get more out of, uh, out of the study of His Word. And the more I get out of it, the more humble it makes me because the more I realize how God, big God is, the more I understand how small I am. The reformers were obsessed with theology because in the word of God, they knew and learned so much more of God. These, these pages they discovered uh, in, in, the, in the scripture as they looked into the scripture and as they rolled through the pages, they discovered so much about Christ. And so every elder should study theology to know God deeper. We study the entirety of God's word, so our focus is on him. If we only study those passages that we like or that are favored, uh, uh, that are favored by what we want, 
then our theology gets all out of balance. It is in the pages of Scripture that we discover so much about God. We, we, do, we, we discover more about God's love, and we discover that God is indeed love. But you know what else do we discover? That He's holy, and that He's just, that He's sovereign, and yet He holds man accountable for choosing sin. It is in His Word that we discover that He can use evil to accomplish His will. But he is not evil, and no evil can be in his presence. It is in his word that we read that he is unapproachable, and yet we draw near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. When we stay focused on God and how he reveals himself in his word, we won't fall into false teaching. Secondly, focus on the word of his grace. When Paul makes this reference to the word of his grace, Yes, he is speaking of the gospel, but it goes beyond the gospel. It is a whole written word of God. Yes, we are to focus on the gospel, but we are to focus on the entirety of the word of God. From the beginning of scripture to the end of scripture, we see the grace of God towards the sinner. In the garden, Adam and Eve, you know what they did. They sinned. They put the entirety of the human race under God's righteous judgment. All the human race is under the wrath of God. However, the word of grace is seen in that from the woman's seed, one would come. God says that would crush the head of the serpent. Fast forward to Abraham. Promise is given that from his seed, one would come that would bless all nations. We see the promise throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament comes and it makes it clear that Jesus is the seed of both the woman and of Abraham. God sent his son to bear the just payment for our sin. And his death is applied to every sinner that trusts him. And you know what? It's applied apart from our own merit. This message is throughout the entirety of the word of God. And that is the message. The word of God's grace. Throughout the pages of scripture. We discover God's grace over. And over. And over. And over. And over. And over again. God's grace to sinners. It's not God's grace in our works. That's a false teaching. That's a false teaching of Roman Catholicism. It's not our works alone. That justify us or sanctify us either. That is a false teaching of legalism. We can't earn God's grace. And, and anything that says that we can earn God's grace. Is a false teaching and glorifies man's grace. Because it's freely given and not earned. Because it's freely given. It robs us of boasting. It robs us of pride. Therefore we must seek to live by. Understand and teach God's word of grace. It is the word that builds up. It is a word that strengthens the saints. It is the word that helps them resist false teaching. It is a word that can give them the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is speaking of future promise of heaven. Only those who are sanctified, which is made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ, will ever be able to stand before God. Church, the elder must guard themselves, then guard the flock from fierce wolves. And I know a lot of people in churches all across America that will say doctrine's not important. Some will even go so far as to say, well, doctrine is just harmful to the church. 
The reason why they say this is often because they, they, and honestly, we have built so much around emotional experience. And often that's all we seek in a church. We want something that's emotionally experiential. However, if that experience is not rooted in sound doctrine, then it's not from the Lord. It doesn't matter what your experience is. If it's, if it's not rooted in sound doctrine, it's just an experience. Therefore, um, there's an overarching emphasis on sound doctrine throughout Scripture. When you read Scripture, it talks about doctrine over and over and over again. This is why the Lord continually warns against false doctrine and teaching. It's important what you believe. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptist preachers ever, realized that a decline in vital godliness would result from a departure of the doctrines of the depravity of the sinner, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and the absolute necessity of regeneration and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You know what? We look at our society. We look at our, our country. We look at our culture. And we wonder, what is wrong? You ever do that? You ever kind of look around and you say, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the church in America today? What's wrong with society? We stop being godly. You know why? Because we've stopped teaching and learning doctrine. And so therefore, you know what we do? Whatever we want. We do whatever we want. Because it doesn't matter. Because we don't know, we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. Why do you think somebody could go to a Baptist church their entire life and pack up and go to a different church that teaches something entirely different theologically or doctrinally? Because they don't even know what they believe in the first place. And that's the majority of Christians today. Because pastors don't stand in the pulpit and preach the word of God. And because they refuse to talk about doctrine and theology because, oh, well, that's boring. And so therefore, we graduate all these people in the Christian faith that know nothing about why they believe what they believe. And we do whatever we want, regardless of what Scripture teaches. Now, I know you can say, well, this was to the elders, meaning you just preached a whole sermon to yourself, pastor. Good job. In some respects, that's true. I did. The weight of conviction I felt preaching this sermon, I can't even begin to tell you about. As I prepared it and as God began to convict me, this is your job. But it's not entirely true. Yes, I need to guard the flock. Yes, I need to guard myself first. Yes, I need to warn against false teachers. But I submit to you this morning that you have to allow your pastor to warn you. And you have to allow him to focus on God and the word of his grace. And you have to allow him to always draw the conversation back to the word of God. And you have to allow him to say, what does God's word teach us? What does God's word tell us? Oh, how do you handle that situation? Let's see what God's word says. You don't rely 
on what everyone else says? Do you rely on God's word and what's being proclaimed from the person who's entrusted to guard you? Additionally, your first question about any teaching should be this. Is this doctrinally sound? I don't care what it is. That should be your first question. Is this doctrinally sound? And if you don't know, if you can't tell, then ask. Call me up. Send me a text message. Ask me to come to your house. Say, Pastor, I'm looking at this book. I'm confused. I don't know if this is right or not. If I haven't read it, I'll read it just for you. Pastor, I want to see this movie. I don't know if it's sound or not. I'll tell you. You have to let the shepherd guard the flock. You have to. And then you have to receive the teaching when he's guarding you. Church, I don't know how the Lord may have spoken to you this week. I know how he spoke to me. I don't know how maybe he spoke to you through this message. I know how he spoke to me. I did a lot of praying this week. It's not easy to preach a message like this. But you know, perhaps this morning you're thinking, I don't, I don't even ask myself if this is doctrinally sound. And you need to start. Maybe, maybe you just maybe you need to pray because maybe you're mixed up into some sort of garbage you shouldn't be mixed up in. Some bad doctrine, bad theology. Or maybe you just you don't know certain things. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. I'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe this morning. For the first time through the proclamation of this message, when I was talking about what Christ has done, you realize that you don't know Christ. He's not your Savior. And today you want to you get that right for the Lord. I'll be standing down front. If you want someone to pray with you, I'll be glad to pray with you. You can pray in your pew. You can do what you can talk to me after the sermon. However the Lord's spoken to you, I pray that you would respond to him. Let's close our prayer.